I've reported other people's stories for a long time, confronting people in power. But behind this broadcast voice, I've hidden my greatest secret. I was in an abusive marriage. It lasted a year, but it changed my life. Part of me always blamed myself for what happened, and I've lived with the shame. So many of us live like this. It's time we change that. I'm Anna Maria Tremonti. Welcome to Paradise is my story. Available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. What's that? I liked his Ten Commandments. What were they? Uh, thou shalt love all animals. Thou shalt not go to school. Thou shalt eat all the candy thou wants. Thou shalt not kick dogs. Thou shalt never get sick. Thou shalt never die. Wow. Yeah. I'm Alex McKinnon, and this is Sorry About the Kid. Chapter 3 Ghost. Testing, one, two, testing, testing. Hello, 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 hello. <laughs> my parents and I are sitting in my old bedroom, surrounded by photos and letters and newspaper clippings. Did you see this picture? This is the practice the day before he died. He's taller than everybody. Yeah, he grew. <laughs> he must have cut this out. I'm going through boxes of Paul's old things to see if they might trigger some of my memories. What is it? It's a card from you. A card from me? What does it say? Brother, when I found this birthday card saying what a great guy you are and how lucky I am to have you as a brother, my throat clogged, my heart skipped a beat, and I got tears in my eyes. I guess I hated to part with the dollar seventy-five more than I thought. <laughs> we find jokes he wrote and Mother's Day cards. And there's stuff from after his death, too. So these are poems I wrote for Paul. Can you read one? When near frantic, I rushed to the scene of your accident and found hushed silence, reverence, and tenderness. Infinite love and compassion imprinted on the faces who looked with awe and wonder at my wounded boy. So still, your breathing regular, soft and steady, hypnotic, beautiful, the breath of God. I knew again what a miracle you were, had always been. And so I turned my eyes from all the evidence of blood, broken body, death, and said, I'm here, sweet boy. You're safe and strong. You'll be fine. Were you waiting for me to just say goodbye? It's too hard for my mom to read me everything she wrote. In another letter after his death, she asked Paul, Did you see us that night, Dad and I? Rolling in pain. Your death so much more painful than your birth. No relief from the contractions. Just endless waves of pain. Flooding every part of our bodies. 
My mom's name, by the way, is Dolores, which means pain and sorrow. I sometimes wonder what my family's grief would have felt like if the accident had been more of a fluke, some incomprehensible moment of chance and chaos, not something so stupidly easily preventable. Ten more witnesses testified today, all ten agreeing that the police car that struck and killed Paul McKinnon was speeding excessively. All six witnesses who noticed the traffic lights testified the cruisers sped through a red. Today, the rookie policeman who was at the wheel testified he hadn't noticed the light. And he said he'll drive the same way in the future. It was emotional stuff for the victim's mother, Dolores. The emotions are always there, not only listening today. Uh, we're always aware of what happened to him, and we just want to make sure that it never happens again to anybody else. They're determined to keep fighting. They say they must give their child's death some meaning. A few months after the inquest into Paul's death, the coroner released his report. Based on the 30 witness testimonies he heard, he concluded that Paul had, in fact, been crossing on a green light, and that the police siren had only sounded a second or two before he was hit. The driver, Officer Serge Markovic, had testified that he'd been trained not to sound the siren for too long, so as not to distress the public. The coroner recommended that the Montreal police change this policy, and that they make sure new recruits are always paired with an experienced officer. But he also stated that bad policy wasn't the only thing responsible for Paul's death. He wrote that the burden of alerting the public to the danger of their presence rests entirely on the police officers in the car, and that in this case, Paul died because the officers in the car chose not to adequately announce their presence. My parents thought that this would mean that Mark Vick would be charged with negligent driving and brought to trial. But Montreal's lead prosecutor wasn't convinced there was enough evidence. Mark Vick was allowed to keep his job, and for a time, it seemed the only punishment he would receive was the three-day suspension he got from an internal police discipline board for endangering the lives of pedestrians. We couldn't wrap our heads around it. I think we did kind of believe that eventually he would just say, yes, this was a huge, huge mistake. And there would be a kind of shared blame for his, uh, his lack of training. So in that sense, we were naive. We didn't kind of realize the extent to which they would defend their position. After the inquest, my parents felt this need to fill the silence of the house. It felt very strange to not have five people living in the house. So we applied for foster care, and I think that took about a year. But it was like a gift. They brought us this beautiful, healthy, four-day-old baby. I remember little by little, it started to feel okay to laugh again. And then I remember when I graduated from from grade six and Sarah was holding him at my graduation, he, 
he threw up all down her dress. Yeah, all down the back of her dress. <laughs> and the people in the back went, ah, and she was just so cool about it. <laughs> yeah, his presence just, you couldn't help but kind of believe that, you know, life could be good. My mom felt like Paul would have loved the baby, too. But of course, nothing was going to make us miss him any less. I think the movie Ghost had come out. We had a video of it. So that movie I watched over and over and over again and fantasized that Paul was around the way Patrick Swayze is in that movie. This is my sister Sarah, who was 16 when Paul died. Because like that story... There's a person who dies suddenly, and then he's around. You know, in a sense, it's kind of creepy <laughs> because he kind of stalks to me more <laughs> <laughs> in all of her grief. And, you know, how tempting and like how much wishful thinking to have that be real. Sarah stepped into a kind of caregiving role that year for all of us around her. At Paul's wake, My brother's friend, Greg, had been nervous about seeing Paul's corpse. Sarah snuck him in to see another dead body in the room next door so that seeing Paul's wouldn't be such a shock. I think I focused a lot on doing, and I focused a lot on presenting and performing. I will be brave. I will be strong. And that felt good on a certain level, but then, of course, it's also a deep, deep defensiveness nobody's going to see how bad this hurts. Nobody's going to see how affected I am. Since Montreal's courts were refusing to criminally charge Markovic, my parents started petitioning the provincial courts to do so. They were worried that if Markovic wasn't punished, the city's cops would just keep driving recklessly and soon kill someone else. For over a year... They wrote letters and even held a press conference saying that if the courts do nothing, then the next death will be due to their negligence. Finally, Quebec's lead prosecutor agreed there was enough evidence for a trial, and a date was set. By the time it got underway, I was 13. The hearings dragged on in fits and starts for almost a year. My family and I would sit in the courtroom, listening once again to testimony about the last moments of Paul's existence, over and over and over, reliving his death from every angle. All the while, Markovic maintained he'd done nothing wrong. My mom remembers the defense lawyer tossing around the autopsy pictures of Paul's body as if it was nothing. And that one time, he asked the judge to have me kicked out of court because I kept muttering things under my breath. He basically wanted us to be thrown out of court as completely crazy, hysterical people mm. who were looking for uh, vengeance. Right. And so we were just very, very careful to not show any anger. Mm-hmm. When you get involved in the courts, it doesn't allow you to really just grieve the way you should grieve because the process is soul-sucking, really. Mm. 
It's not compassionate. It's clinical at a time when you're anything but clinical. It all was just horrible. It was horrible that you had to be there. And yet I did insist on being there. Somehow what I remember most about the trial is the slew of reporters that waited outside the courtroom and how whenever anyone opened the doors and stepped out into the hall, all these camera flashes would go off. I used to pretend I had to go to the bathroom sometimes just to get my photo taken again. I hate that I remember that. It's so vivid in my mind. I could hear the roar of rapid-fire clicks as the camera shutters open and close. Why is that detail still so clear to me, when my memories of my brother have completely disappeared? You know, I've, I've always thought that my memory of that time was very good. Mm. Growing up when my sister was studying Greek, I was... I'm continuing my grief counseling sessions with Yvonne. She had to memorize the, the Greek alphabet, and I was bored and was able to do it in, like, you know, ten minutes. And I still can recite the Greek alphabet and, or uh, Hamlet soliloquy or whatever. I mean, I just have this a very good memory, and I just can't remember anything about Paul. I have, I have two memories of him, and neither of them are that important. They're, mm. you know... Yeah, well, what uh, are they? Can you talk about them? Because they are important. You remembered them. Sure. Um, I'm going to cry. Well, that's good. You should allow yourself to. Mm. Um, one of them is... For the last 30 years, I've only had two memories of Paul. Real memories. Not just things I know about because I've seen a photo or something. The first one is just this flash of Paul telling me he wasn't afraid of the dark anymore. So that's, that's one of them. The second one and is of this time he took me to the barber. And I wanted the same haircut as him. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And when he, <clears throat> when he got out, <laughs> I don't know why I'm crying right well, now. It's very important to you, Alex. It's an important story. I remember him saying that he's going to be waiting outside, but don't get the same one as me, same haircut. And the barber said, what, what are you going to do for you today? And I whispered, the same, same one as him. And I saw Paul kind of look at me and just be like, oh, roll his <laughs> eyes and, okay, fine. And, uh, well, why do you think you remember that? I don't know. I don't know. I really don't. I think that's a tremendous memory. It tells me, I mean, he really was your, your, your mentor. Like you, you wanted to have hair like him and you wanted to be like him. And probably it was too painful at the age you were to imagine not having him in your life because he was your, your mentor. He would have helped you through and you, you had to grow up without him. Yeah. You know, there's some reason why you've been thinking a lot about that one memory of yours. There's a reason for it. There's a reason why you're thinking about it a lot. But you have to ask yourself and, and have the patience to listen.
Uncover from CBC Podcasts is your source for exceptional storytelling and groundbreaking journalism. Unveil the shocking secrets of one of Canada's most prolific fashion moguls. He far exceeds Jeffrey Epstein. He far exceeds Bill Cosby. And dive into the unsolved murders of two Canadian billionaires. This is a perfect storm of conspiracy theory. It's got all the ingredients, none of the answers. With new episodes released weekly, you'll hear the very best in award-winning true crime. Listen to Uncover wherever you get your podcasts. As I've been starting to confront my own relationship with memory, I've also noticed some inconsistencies within my family's narrative. One of the things my mom has always mentioned when she talks about the day Paul was killed is the weather. It's part of her story. That October of that year was an especially rainy and cold month, but that the 25th was suddenly warm and sunny. I think it was a nice day. I think it had been raining and raining and raining all September and all October, like just pouring rain every night. But that day it was nice. I never really thought much about it until I started doing research for this podcast and found out that there hadn't been much rain that month, and that that day, the sky was overcast. Then when I asked my dad about identifying Paul's body at the morgue, he said this. Yeah, I was the one who had to identify him. And we waited and waited, and it's a long time afterwards. The morgue, it wasn't right after the accident, it was months later, from what I remember. How could it be months later? He was was buried four days later. That's true. Why do I think it's the... It seems to me it was quite a bit later, but you're right. It couldn't have been. It makes sense that my parents' memories have shifted over the past 30 years. But it also worries me. If I do recover memories of Paul, how will I be able to trust that they're real? There's another thing I've been noticing while talking to people about Paul these past few months. When someone brings up a story about him, it seems like it might be triggering one of my own memories. I find myself shutting down the conversation. Save this for later. When I have the mic on, I tell them. But the later never comes. I recently brought this up with my wife Katie over dinner, while our five-year-old Stella was watching cartoons in the other room. It's a weird thing because mm-hmm. this whole thing is trying to get to know Paul better. But I find myself mm-hmm. almost trying to shut it down in a way. Mm-hmm. It's something I push away. Mm-hmm. I think I need to work through why exactly I'm so reluctant to let uh, these I mean, memories think- be jogged. I mean, the obvious answer is because they're extremely painful. And it brings up a very painful time for you and your family where you don't want to revisit that. No, but I think I'd agree with you if if what I didn't remember was the trauma of it. Seeing my parents cry and seeing them. But I remember that stuff. I remember the court case. I remember the funeral. I remember that. It's the good stuff. I don't remember it. But that's almost worse to remember the good stuff because then you remember what you lost. Hmm. Yeah. What are you doing? What can I do now? What can you do now? 
Mm-hmm. Why don't you put yourself to bed? That would yeah. be nice. Give yourself a bath. Okay, Push. so you're expecting me to just drown. <laughs> no. Don't drown, no, please. I don't. Try to keep your head above water. Uh, but it is bath time. I think the first time I really came face to face with what I lost was when I started high school. Lyola, the same one as Paul. There were traces of him everywhere. My first day there also happened to be the school's first day in a new building. That morning, all the students gathered in the field next to the old campus, and we began a ceremonial walk to the new location, just across the street. I remember stepping off the curb at the crosswalk, the same step Paul had taken in one of his last moments. Paul's class was in their graduating year by then. They all knew who I was and went out of their way to make me feel special. Paul's picture hung in the halls, and an award presented each year in his honor was displayed right next to the main office. I remember one afternoon, sitting in class, when a voice blared through the intercom. Would you please send Paul McKinnon down to the office? The other kids all turned to me in shock. Uh, I mean Alex, the voice said. Alex McKinnon. In a lot of ways, I felt like I was trying to live up to the ghost of Paul. Like I had to be doing something for two. In one of the boxes at my parents' house, I found some notes that Paul's classmates had written to us after he died. There are pages and pages of them, and they all say the same thing. Paul was one of the nicest guys I've ever met. Paul was always happy. He could even fail a test and smile. He was the kind of person who, just by stepping into the room, cheered everybody up. Everybody loved him. We're all going to miss him forever. He's not someone I'll easily forget. Everyone loved Paul. Of course they did. So did I. But it was starting to feel like he was being deified. Like people were remembering this perfect, idealized version of him. I remember one time just letting loose and telling my mom a bunch of Paul's secrets about his bad boy side. Like that he would sometimes smoke cigarettes and that he'd almost had sex once. I felt terrible as soon as I said it. But I think she was actually kind of happy to hear that stuff. That he had experienced more than she knew in his short life. Sometimes I wonder if the version of Paul that was being publicly remembered may have pushed out the real Paul. My Paul. Who I was starting to forget. In your family, your parents were very um, involved in all the, the court proceedings and So who was there, really, uh, for you to talk about your experience with Paul? There there wasn't anybody really talking to you about it, about the past and what he meant to you and what you're feeling about the loss of your brother. Yeah. And what is very helpful for children when there's been a traumatic experience that every year, actually, it's very important to bring it all up. Because 
children have to revisit their feelings. A child um, sees the trauma in different ways as he grows. I'll just give you a little example from my own life. I lost my father when I was two. Every time I must have called him or brought up his name or something, my mother must have cried because I learned very early on that that made her sad. So um, nobody told me not to talk about it, but I stopped talking about it. By the time I got to about eight or nine, when she started to say, well, maybe you want to know something about your father, I said, no, 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 it's okay. No, no, I'm fine. So you have been conditioned to kind of... I'd been conditioned, and I knew that it upset her. And so I grew up never talking about it. And it was only when I was at university doing psychology 101 or something, somebody said something about suppressed memories. I went back to my, my um, room that, that night, and I, I was just beside myself. And it brought out all these memories of him. You know, when I was two years old, being on his on his shoulders and him walking around with me and I thought where did those all come from and slowly I started to realize that I had never unpacked any of this stuff Hmm. so if you if you feel you can the way to really go through memories I'll guide you through it but we have to go through it in lots of detail that's the way memories start to hatch, you know? I'm in. All right, so let's talk about the memory. And Alex, I want you to close your eyes for a moment, take a deep breath. Try to remember the day. Remember what you can about the day. What kind of day was it that you went to have your hair cut? I remember it must have been spring or summer because I, it was nice. And I really see him in the chair, like looking at him there and just being like, wow, he's big, like tall, I mean. And um, he just looks almost like uh, like the, it's going to sound terrible, but like the, the, the Lincoln, <laughs> Lincoln Memorial. Like he just, in that, it just seems so big in that chair. And I was sitting there reading a magazine um, and like looking up at him. He and I remember him being so so friendly uh, with the barber. Oh, yeah. What does that What does that bring up for you? I don't know. I think it just because um, <clears throat> I think at the time um, there was just probably you know he's. You take a moment, just take a moment, Alex, and think about it, you know? I think it was, it was probably a bit of jealousy, like a little bit of like, well, why isn't he nice to me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he was, though, he was. It was just like, just, you know, I was an annoying little brother, and he, and I was always copying him. But you see, you've got a feeling there because there, there's something you, you, you know about Paul. He could be very charming, could be very nice. Yeah. He was nice to the barber. But he could be tough on you sometimes, you know? So, yeah. But at the same time, it's touched you that he was a, a kind person. 
this is a, a different thing, but there was another st- another memory that just kind of popped into my head of this man, uh, older guy in his, I don't know, 80s or so, and uh, he had just recently gone blind, and he couldn't cross the street. And uh, I remember uh, me and my brother going to school, like wa- walking to school, and him at like, you know, in grade five or something like that, uh, walking this guy across the street. Oh. That's very special, too, isn't it? Yeah. 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 I can remember it so well. I can remember him helping the guy sit down on stairs after we had crossed. And, um, and yeah, I remember, I remember it so well. What does it make you feel inside? I don't know. I mean, a little bit lighter, to be honest. Um, it's nice to kind of remember, to kind of see different parts of a memory that I didn't really allow myself to, to think of. You see, that's what I want you to start building. One memory that you unpack will trigger others. Do you think you've had enough for today, Alex? I think so. Um, okay, so I'm going to stop the recording. On the next episode of Sorry About the Kid. It's, it, was, it's hard for, it was hard, and it still is hard, for him to be static. Because we keep changing and he doesn't as well. And I think that becomes a constant readjustment against his stillness. So I am on my way to the hypnotherapist. Gonna be put under, I guess? I don't know. I have no idea what to expect from this, but I'm... I'm I'm open to it. Sorry About the Kid is written and produced by me, Alex McKinnon, and Mira Burt-Wintonic. Editing and sound design by Mira Burt-Wintonic. Jeff Turner is our senior producer. Our theme music is by David Drury. S.K. Robert is our coordinating producer. Our associate producer is Caitlin Taylor. Our logo is by Mathilde Corbet. Arif Nurani is our executive producer. Follow Story About the Kid on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, it would mean a lot to us if you tell your friends about it or leave us a review. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.